Just really fast. There are some people who are here for the first time tonight. Welcome. Uh, glad you're here. And um, and you haven't yet signed up for the class and you were wanting to do that. We now have a computer out in the lobby that you can do that at. Okay, It's the second computer. It's the one on your right. It's the same computers that you checked in at on when you got here. If you are not yet enrolled in this class, then that's what you need to do on your way out when you leave tonight. Um, I'll explain this really briefly. So when you when you come to school and ministry, there's kind of a threefold system that we have going on. One is that you enroll to be a part of school and ministry. Um, that's a separate process from enrolling in a class. So there's the enrollment in school and ministry. There's the registering for classes. And then there's also the checking in that happens when you are... Um, when you, when you arrive and you say if you did your homework or not. So if you have not yet uh, checked in, you're going to want to do that tonight. If you've not registered for this class, you're going to want to do that tonight. And if you're not enrolled in School of Ministry and yet you're here, you're going to want to enroll in School of Ministry tonight as well. So I just wanted to let you know about that. Um, and then also in the emails that Carol sends out, hopefully you're all getting those. Let us know if you're not. But in the emails that she sends out, there is a link in there to, uh, if you miss a class, there's a link for the SoundCloud so that you can listen to the lecture. Um, and there's also a link to fill out a form that talks about, basically it's, if you weren't here to, to, to actually sit in on the class, you fill out that form and you talk about um, what the experience was like as you listened to it and as you read through the material. So just know that to receive credit for the course, if you're not here, you do have to complete uh, the listening part and then the also, also the the filling out form, part of filling out that form, okay? Both of those links are in the email, so pay uh, close attention to those emails when they come out. That's it. Here's Pastor Phil. By the way, uh, this will be kind of interesting when we, um, or exciting, uh, we're going we're gonna to have an influence app, which will be really um, very interactive, and one of the things you'll be able to do is you'll be able to do everything he just said on your phone. So you can set your device, you can check in, you can register, you can do all that stuff, and you won't have to go to the computer once we get that up and running, which will be in the spring. So it'll be kind of neat. If you want to see kind of the format of what it looks like, you can download My K-Love, that's K-Love Radio, My K-Love, and it'll be, that's the platform we're using. So everything will be there. Everything we have digitally will be on your device uh, coming in the spring. So it's going to be pretty pretty cool stuff. Uh, let me make sure I understand your question. Your question is uh, regarding Bible translations. Um, if there are differences in them, does that point to inaccuracies in Scripture itself? Is that the question? Pretty much? Okay, I'm going to try to, um, I have to do a lot of stuff in 40 minutes. So I'm going to try to go as fast as I can, as succinct as I can, and try to help you understand that because i got to cover communion. We're going to do some interactive stuff at the end here. Okay, think about it like this. Uh, think about two families. Let's just say this is the Smith family and this is the Jones family, these two monitors. Okay? All manuscripts of the Bible fall into two families, the Smith or the Jones family. Okay? They're actually not called that. Okay? One's called the Codex Vaticanicus or, or you know, the, uh, or the majority text, which falls into certain things, and then minority text. Let's make it that way, okay? So in those two, you have, um, right now, you have about a little over 5,000 manuscripts of the Bible. What that means is you have a whole page out of a Bible, or you have a whole book of the Bible. Either one are called manuscripts, okay? Handwritten copies of an original text. So in that family, have you ever noticed how families have take on characteristics 
You know, the kind of kids kind of look like the parents kind of thing, right? Okay. And so each of those families have family characteristics. So of the 5,321 manuscripts of the Bible, 95% of them are over here in this family called the majority. Kind of makes sense, right? Majority, family. And then 5% over here in the minority family. And out of those manuscripts that were copied, there are out of that then Bible translations that are then done. So starting uh, up, kind of the, the most famous English translation of the Bible you know of is probably the King James Bible. And the King James Bible came out of the majority text. So 95%, so roughly 5,000 of all the manuscripts supported the King James Bible. And then, um, once that came, in, 19, in 1884, the British Missionary Society decided they needed a new translation. They came up with what was called the Revised Version, which later became the Revised Standard Version, which later became the New Revised Standard Version. That came out of the minority text. Okay? Two families. What's the difference? This one over here, okay, um, is almost 100% flawless in terms of its manuscripts. The only differences you find in 5,000 of them are minor uh, scribal errors, meaning they copied the words wrong. They don't, they don't omit text. They don't have text that don't belong there. Over here, in the one that only has 5% of all of them, minority text, in two of their best manuscripts, there's over 3,000 discrepancies in the Gospels alone. Okay? That's why when you have, sometimes you're reading your Bible, these do not appear in the best manuscripts, and you assume that they're telling you the truth. They are telling you the truth, but they have determined what are the best manuscripts. So the two best manuscripts that they have over here are what's called the Codex, which means a book, the Codex Vaticanicus, because it's stored in Vatican Library, and the Codex Sinaiticus, because it was found in Sinai. Those two alone have the 3,000 discrepancies in the Gospels alone. Now, 1884, Revised Version. Following that was what was called the American Version, which later became the New American Standard Version. And so since 1884, there have been 300 different English translations of the Bible. Okay, so in a little over 120 years, you have 300 English translations of the Bible that came out of this family of manuscripts. And so, out of this family of manuscripts, um, you, you don't have all the, that happening, okay? What you have is really, you have the New King James Bible coming out of that. It came out of the majority text. So, what motivates us to have 300 English translations of the Bible? Our language has not changed that much. What motivates us is money. So there's, not an, there's not a Bible publisher today that's owned by Christians, okay? Many of the... Many of the people that print Bibles today, they also print Jehovah's Witnesses, New World Translation, different things like that, okay? So what motivates it? It takes $10 million to create a new translation of the Bible. That's what it costs. By the time you print them, publish them, advertise them, you send them to market, you pay guys to translate it, come up with cool notes and nice leather, it costs $10 million or $100 million or $10 million, but the profit is $100 million. So every time I make a new translation, I make roughly $90 million, Right, $900 million, right? $100 million, yeah. So what happens is the motivation doesn't become necessarily, I want you to have the best translation of the Bible. What I want to do is I want to profit from that. This has never been different. 
This has never been different. In the Old Testament, you have the same thing. In the Old Testament, you have um, uh, Scripture that is consistent, accepted by the rabbis, and you have Scripture that isn't. So I think when a person says, well, how can this Bible be accurate when your Bible has verses and mine doesn't? You say, you're right, that Bible is not. I'm just the way I am, okay? I'm just going to tell you the way it is. But if we understand, I don't, translations don't mean that much to me. What means something? What family did it come out of? I had a Greek professor. He actually was a president of a seminary. He got his Ph.D. in New Testament Greek. He was teaching at my church one time, and he got up and he said the Greek says, but he was quoting out of the minority Greek text. And I went up to him, and I said, you know, you said it says in the Greek, and he says, yes. And I says, which Greek text are you quoting from? He said, I've never been asked that question. I said, well, I'm asking, which one are you quoting from? Are you quoting from Nestles? You're quoting, what are you quoting from you know, the, the Texas Receptus? What are you quoting from? You see, family has all, makes all the difference in the world. So even when a guy like Martin Luther, who I don't respect in a lot of ways because of his anti-Semitism, but when he was looking for the best translation as a Roman Catholic, he went over to the majority text, and his German text was created out of this one. Part of what we're going to do somewhere down the road in school of ministry is we're going to help you understand manuscripts because it is so powerful when you begin to see the divine hand of God in manuscripts and how God ensured its accuracy. It's just mind-blowing. So I know I can't fully answer your question. I can only just kind of give you enough to, you know, make you curious, mad, or whatever. But that's the best I can do tonight, okay? All right. Okay, let's go on. Communion. Communion. Um, so communion means is the idea of sharing, the, the idea that we have something in common. The thing that brings us together that we have in commonality is we have all been forgiven of sin. Isn't that great? That's what, and we share in that. And when we take the cup and when we take the bread, what we're saying, we agree that we have something in common. We have common redemption. And so the bread and the cup, they point us to what Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sins, and he spilled his blood. Behind that is Passover. That's the origin of, of communion. Um, when you think about Passover, and whether you know about Passover or not, if you don't, I, I want to encourage you to, uh, to go get um, the Ten Commandments and watch it with Charleston Heston, all right? It's actually pretty good. You know, it's a really old, it's probably 50 years old, but it's awesome. You know, they've colorized it, it's cool. But here's the idea that in the 10th plague, God said, I'm going to kill the firstborn, but every house that has blood over the doorposts and on its sides, will the death angel, when it sees it, will pass over the house, and there will no death fall in that house. So it was a lamb that was killed, blood that was, was sprinkled on the top and on the sides and on the bottom. They would sprinkle this blood all the way around it, and when that death angel came, it passed over. And then God's instruction was, Get ready to leave town because when this happens, you're not going to be popular. Okay? Egypt is going to experience a tragedy. So I don't want you to put an 11 in the bread. It will be unleavened. So there was two reasons why bread was unleavened in that day and why we do that today. One is bread would take time to rise. You're not going to have time to let the leaven set and, and the bread to rise. 
The second reason was leaven was considered to be something of an impurity when you think about biblical concepts. Leaven was kind of a picture of sin. A little leaven does what to the whole lump? It leavens the whole lump. You can't isolate it. So the idea is the body of Christ is without sin. It is without leaven. Okay? It doesn't need to grow. It doesn't, he doesn't have to become more than who he is. He is everything you need. Bread, does, bread expands when, it leaven, when leaven hits it. Jesus doesn't need to expand from who he is. You have 100% God in the flesh. So when I take that bread, I'm, I'm, it's, it's really this historical train that takes me back to Passover, and I'm remembering that death has passed over my house. When you look at um, the description of how the blood is put on the door, it actually, and, and maybe it's coincidental by divine consequence, but it is the blood is put on the top, on the sides of the doorpost, and on the floor. It is in the shape of a cross if you wanted to. Maybe it's just coincidental, but God does things like that every once in a while. When you look at the tribes of Israel, when they went out into the wilderness there, remember, and they were traveling, and there was an order given to where the tribes were to line up. And in the center of that was, right in the very center of that was, was the Ark of the Covenant, was the tabernacle. And the tribes that would, tri- would, would go to the north of that, to the south, the east, and the west. And if you had an aerial view, if you could take and just draw that out, you would notice that looking down on that, there were less tribes that were up to the north, much more tribes that were down to the south, and an even amount that were to the east and to the west. It literally painted a picture of a cross from the, if you could take an aerial view of that. God continually will bring you back to that. There is an unbroken line of redemption, a scarlet thread of redemption, if you will, that starts back there. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? And what did they do? They covered themselves with fig leaves. But that wasn't sufficient, was it? It did not hide their guilt. It did not take away their sin or their shame. And so what did God do? The first blood sacrifice came. And it says God killed an animal and covered them. The word covering is the Hebrew word kapar. It means to atone for. Their sins were atoned for in that covering. And that's why Cain and Abel, that's why Cain got so upset because he brought an offering of fruit instead of sacrifice of, of, of sin, for sin. Abel brought a lamb and sacrificed it, and that was his offering. Cain brought fruit like it was the same thing as Adam bringing fig tree. So you have this line of redemption, this bloodline that runs all the way through Scripture, even when Rahab the harlot, remember when they went into Jericho and they said, hey, we're going to come back, and what's going to be the symbol? It's going to be a scarlet thread hanging from the window. It was a redemption. She was forgiven because of her, uh, of her faith in the God of Israel, and the symbol thereof would be that scarlet thread of redemption. And so when you come to the book of Revelation, he sums it up by saying, Jesus Christ is a lamb of God, watch this, slain before the foundations of the world. So when was Jesus crucified in the heart and the plan of God? Before, God ever sin- before man ever sinned. So God had a, no, here's a principle, write this one down. God had a uh, provision before man had a problem. It's a spiritual principle that you can live with. You will face problems in your life. God has a provision for that problem before the problem arrives. 
You don't have to say, oh, me, oh, my, when a problem comes. God already has the provision. The dispatching of that, of that, of that answer comes in God's time and God's way. Have you ever noticed God is slow when you're believing him for something in your, in your time frame? But he's right on time in his time frame. So uh, you're looking at page 13 now. You're, we're looking through this, uh, this whole idea. You've got the summary there on page 13 of the Passover. Um, if you go to the bottom of the observance, it's called by various names in the New Testament. It's called the body and the blood of Christ. It's called the breaking of bread. It's called communion, Lord's Supper, bread and cup of the Lord. Those are all interchangeable terms. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and they'll say, what's that? Because they're used to the term communion. All right, so just just kind of walk through them, help them to understand what that means. Top of page 14, sometimes people use the word Eucharist. We're going to take the Eucharist, which simply is a word that means thanksgiving. It's just giving thanks for what God has done. Or the word mass, which derives itself from a Latin word, meaning mitre, meaning to send or to dismiss. So in the Catholic tradition, they have what's called a mass, and it's simply just a descriptive word that they use that means those two things. Um, so when they, when they say, you know, when there's a dismissal going over or whatever, now people uh, a lot of times get confused because um, here's the, the bottom line of, of why, why Scripture is so powerful and what it means. Um, I believe there is absolute truth. And what that means is there is one truth and all other, of, uh, all other things claiming to be true are false. So I believe the Bible is absolute truth. This is why I govern my life by, okay? This is the test. Now, if you're in another tradition like, let's say, Catholicism, and by the way, there are many, many wonderful Catholic people, many wonderful Catholic people who truly know Jesus Christ. They did not become Christians because of Catholicism, but because of Jesus and the Word of God their faith in him, okay? Uh, there are Mormons who I believe are truly saved, but they're Mormons because of Jesus and in spite of what, of what Mormonism teaches because there's salvation only one way. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's not because of religion. It's because of Jesus. This is an absolute truth. Now, in Catholicism, got to watch my time here. In Catholicism, you have two sources of authority. You have the Bible and you have the Pope. It's called papal authority. Papal authority always trumps the Bible. Salvation is found in Catholicism in the church. That's why they have things called the sacraments, which is a Latin word which means that which saves you. So you're saved by keeping the sacraments. See how that works? And so that's why in, in Catholicism, you, you know, the, the tradition has been for the priest to handle the host, which is the literal body of Christ. And you, the reason you can't handle it, you know, some renegade priests are letting you do that now, but the reason you can't handle it is because you're not worthy to hold the body of Christ because only a priest can do that. Now, I don't say this so you can use anything I've just told you as a tool to fight with someone or make somebody feel bad. You need to have an understanding. You need to have compassion. You need to, have, you need to be able to relate. You need to have to know where people are coming from. Most Catholics don't know what the, why they believe what they believe. So don't, 
don't offend them. Please. You know, we're called to minister and give grace to people, not to beat them up. If, you're, if, you're, if you think your goal is to beat people up, you're in the wrong place. Your goal is to minister to them, help them to understand it. Transition. Catholics make great, great committed believers, born-again believers. Okay? They got enough of the Catholic guilt to keep them coming. <laughs> Amen? And then, you know, if, you know, every once in a while you can just throw a good purgatory sermon out there and keep them fired up. By the way, great thing to do, like purgatory, we're talking about this in break, purgatory, and, 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 and I know this is not directly related, but it's so critical to this. I always say, instead of saying purgatory is not in the Bible, what I say is, hey, I was looking for purgatory in the Bible, and I couldn't find it. Do you know where it is? And if you don't, would you ask your Catholic priest? Because self-discovery is the key to enlightenment. It's not statements that condemn, it's self-discovery. I've sent many Catholics to priests who've come back and they say it's not in there. Because not even Catholics believed until the 14th century. It's when it was invented by a pope who had authority over Scripture. Okay? So communion. So um, What are we really doing? Middle of page 15, when we have communion, we're proclaiming the Lord's death and we're proclaiming his return. Take this in remembrance of me until when? I return. Until I return. Um, Communion is is a time of examination. It's a time when we take that and we say, you know what? How am I doing with my walk with God? How am I doing in my relationship with my fellow man? And the idea is that that is a time of, of purity where I go, I just got to get some, a few things straightened out here. Um, let's see if there's anything else I want to hit here. Um, communion is, um, is a memorial. It's a reminder of what Jesus did. Um, it's not re-crucifying Jesus. Hebrews warns us about re-crucifying Christ. He doesn't have to be crucified again. That's why... This cross here doesn't have Jesus on it. You see, having Jesus on a cross is a re-crucifixion. It's theological. It's not just, you know, a reminder. It's theological. Jesus died once and for all, the sins for all mankind. There is forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. See how that works? Everything, everything has some theology behind it. It's not just like cool stuff they do. Okay, you have and I have some bad probably rituals and theology. Everybody in here does. Nobody here's got perfect theology. The goal is to try to get as much biblical theology into us as we can. And what it does is it roots out the bad stuff. See how that works? So I don't have all the answers, but I'm a pilgrim on a journey with this book trying to get them. Amen. Okay, Um, I'm going to have Tammy come uh, and walk us through some exercises here. And uh, thank you, guys. Um, We are going to ask you, by the way, before we leave tonight to to help us break this down again. I told you before we weren't going to do that, but I changed my mind. Okay, you know, I was sitting here thinking how um, there's not many places you can find what you're getting tonight. Do you know that? There's not many churches that do this. Um, You know, and, 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 you know, he's... He's a wealth of knowledge, but here's, here's the deal. It's because he's been in this word. It's been because he's in this book, and he searches it out. And 
I don't I just have to encourage you don't miss a class there's only six of them and what you're getting here are the nuggets you should be able to defend your faith there's a hole in there you should be able to defend your faith knowing okay remember we've said if somebody can talk you into it somebody else can talk you out of it you should know these kinds of things because they're your faith right so I just uh, appreciate you babe and you did a great job two things we want to end up with here and um, the reason we're doing these applications is you may not do this once you leave here if you don't practice we have to kind of force you to practice some of the stuff we've worked on right and I really do want you practicing each of these classes I want you practicing baptism and I want you practicing Lord's Supper so here's your assignment um, go ahead and turn around, looks like about four, to the person behind you, because you probably know the person next to you. So everybody, you guys turn around. You turn around to them, and the third table, turn around to the fourth table, and some of the rest of you find somebody you maybe don't know. Real quick, because we've only got a couple minutes. I want you to do it with somebody you don't know. Okay, don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. Here's your assignment. Just turn around. All right, now here we are. Everybody listen. Determine who's A and who's B. Okay? That was easy. You know who's A, who's B. Okay? A, you're a pitcher. You're a pitcher. So remember that word, you're the pitcher. Say, I'm the pitcher. I'm, gonna, I'm a paying pitcher. B, your remembrance. Your remembrance. Now here's what you're going to do. Okay? Baptism is a pitcher. Now you're going to practice this in a minute. Baptism is a pitcher of the death, burial, and resurrection, right? And I want you to, we're going to practice that in a minute. And the other thing is remembrance. Lord's Supper is remembrance of what he's done for us. It is the cup, which is the picture of his blood, and it is the body, which is a picture of, his, of the bread, which is his body. So what we're going to do is get to know each other first of all. So you have 30 seconds, A, and what I want you to say is I want to give you a picture of me. And a picture of me would be, I'm a mother of three children. I've been married 30 lots of years. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I live in Anaheim Hills. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. My dad was a deacon in our church. We were a blue-collar family. You have 30 seconds to give them a picture of who you are, okay? And then in 30 seconds, the next person's going to say, if I could be, be remembered for one thing, this is what I want to be remembered for. I mean, if I could be remembered for one thing, it would be training up women in righteousness. That's the one thing I want to be known for. Okay? So picture A, tell them and give them a picture of who you are, and then I'm going to, in 30 seconds, give the other one. If I could be remembered for anything, it's this. Go. A, go. Picture. Who are you? Five seconds. Okay, B, turn around. If I could be remembered for one thing, I want to be remembered for, go. Five seconds. Okay, very good. Now, for the second part, everybody listen. Baptism is a picture. Lord's Supper is remembrance. Remember me. Remember, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Baptism is a 
of the A, you're going to walk B through telling them what baptism is. So you're going to explain to them that baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. And give them any, anything that Pastor Phil just led us through. You have 30 seconds, 45 seconds. But I want you to start getting comfortable with sharing what baptism is. Beginning to tell people what baptism is. If you've got your book there and you want to pick up a scripture or two, I'm going to actually give you a minute. We've got about a minute. But I want everyone to be comfortable with sharing what is biblical, scriptural baptism. All right? It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection and what that means. And then throw in a little of your testimony. If you've not been baptized, then you might go, I need, I need a testimony, all right? Um, ready? Everybody ready? A, picture, ready, baptism, go. Okay, good, because we want to do one more thing. All right, everybody, listen. We're going to actually now go to B, which is Lord's Supper. And in Lord's Supper, what we want to do is we want to explain both the cup, you know, the, the bread and the body. And this is so good because when we take communion, you know, for you to really just, the scripture tells us not to take it in an unworthy manner. And then we're to examine our heart. And, you know, some people, again, believe they're actually taking the, the literal body. Part of this, you're going to need to go through your study and, and really understand this and explain to them that, again, this is in remembrance of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for you. Okay, we do this in remembrance, not for salvation, but in remembrance. So you might say, what's your experience with the Lord's Supper? Or what's your experience? And you explain that to them. When we take it, it's a time of examination to remember him, to reflect, to let your mind go back to Calvary, see his body broken. A lot of times when I take it, I hold that piece of bread and I look at that. I actually break it. When I chomp and crunch, I think of it. That might, it's, I get a visual picture of his body that was broken for me. Sometimes I'll even take it and I'll dip it in the blood and I'll think about how the body and the blood were mingled together. Because it's a time for me to remember. This is for me to remember what he did on Calvary. It's a very emotional, real remembrance of what Calvary was. So never take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It's for you to remember the high cost of your sin on Calvary. A time for you to just look inwardly. So that's some things you can talk about. Okay, so I'm going to give you about 30 seconds. Pastor Phil's going to come say one last thing. So ready? It's remembrance. Go, Lord's Supper, be. All right, everybody. Let's um, let's focus on a couple of things here. Um, one good question that was asked was, what was the baptism of John when Jesus was baptized? The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It was very common for the Jews to understand that. That's why the, the Sadducees were all around. Remember, the Sadducees came to be baptized of John because they knew he was, there was a prophet. There was something special about him. And remember, here's what John said. Um, he said, you brood of vipers, this is why this dude lost his head, you brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come, bring forth fruits of repentance, and I will baptize you. 
So the, it was a baptism of repentance. Now the Jews were, it was very common for the Jews to have these ceremonial washings that we would call baptisms. Remember when Jesus turned the water into wine? Okay, when he turned the water into wine, the pots that were, were filled with water, there were six ceremonial pots, large pots, that held water. They were for the purification, okay, the rituals, and they were also for converts into Judaism. By the way, just a side note, there were six water pots there, and remember it says, he said fill them all the way to the top. Remember they're filled to the brim with water, and then he turned the water into wine, and the reason there were six, here's a symbol, you see this all the way through John, six was, it came short of completion. The ceremonial washings of the Jews fell one short of completion of the washings. They needed a clean, you see, they needed to be cleansed, all right? Just a side note there. Um, you also understand, and we, we don't have time to go in tonight, but the whole idea within Judaism is, is the idea of a womb, and the earth was in the womb of God. And that's why the spirit, the water, was covering the face of the earth. And the spirit was hovering over it. It was a baptism of the earth. And this is a key piece in Hebrew theology. And we will probably bring some of this out uh, in this Genesis study as we have time to do so. So just some interesting pieces. The other thing I want you to note is we obviously didn't finish what we said we'd do tonight, and that is the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is we're going to, next week, we're going to do, if you can, just study it. You can get ahead of all you want, but next week I'm going to do the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I'm going to push prayer to the 27th with local church. Now, on the 27th, if you have to miss any time, don't miss the 27th. Because um, I just confirmed today that Corey Stark is going to be with us from IHOP in KC, and Corey, if you remember the story, was the guy who was Jewish. He was praying to have his financial situation turn around. He wasn't a Christian. And a guy walked up to him, and he, in praying, Jesus manifest himself, revealed himself. He became a Christian without intending to. And then that week, a guy showed up and said, God told me to come speak to you about your financial situation. And wrote Corey Stark a check for $1 million and, clean, and said, now go serve God. Well, he's going to be with us at School of Ministry. Okay, and uh, we're going to be talking to him. I'm going to be meeting with him, uh, and we'll probably get the prayer team to meeting with him as well. But we're going to be talking about how to set up a night and day prayer ministry, which means 24-7. Okay, we're not ready for that yet. We're going to start in baby little bites, but we're going to start moving toward making prayer a bigger piece of, of what we do here. So it works out really well that we push prayer to that week on the 27th. He'll be with us. Uh, I'll let him share um, probably uh, half of it. We probably won't go through the lesson as much as he's going to talk about prayer, the place of prayer, and what that means. He is actually on staff at, at IHOP in KC, and he actually his job is to actually go around and set up houses of prayer around the world. So I think you're going to find it really, really thrilling, exciting what's going on. And uh, so we got some cool stuff happening uh, in that area. Amen? All right. So God's, God's pulling some, uh, some great things together for us, and we're excited. Uh, also, just happy to announce we have 31 going to South Africa. Um, I think uh, Nathan announced at least 30, so we have at least 31 now. Uh, we have a new convert to South Africa. Marion Shear is going to go to South Africa with us as well. Okay? 
So let's uh, let's uh, pray, and here's how we're going to pray. Uh, it's always good to bless one another. Amen. Okay. So I want you to find somebody that um, is not related to you, and maybe you don't know that well. So let's all just stand up. It's going to make it easier. Stand up. And after you bless somebody, uh, just, you know, if, if you're going to put your hand on them, just put it on their shoulder. No other parts are acceptable. Okay? And uh, just bless them. Just, you know, it may, something quick and simple. We're, you're not, you don't need to do your devotion tonight. Um, just bless them in the name of Jesus, okay? And then the other person will bless you back. And then uh, in just a moment, we'll, we'll break these tables down. All these tables are going to go up against the wall right over here. And the chairs will stack up. Uh, maybe we'll stack them over here by this uh, monitor. And they'll need to be stacked eight high. Okay? That's right. All right? So go for it. 